Today's chapel speaker is our own Dr. Dr. Hans Matawemi, who's, who's here to give the next installment of, in our academic lecture series, Dangerous Ideas. Uh, if you don't know, Dr. Matawemi is an assistant professor of theological studies here at Covenant. He was born in Sweden and grew up in Nigeria and Austria, earned his undergrad at McGill University in Canada and his MD from Howard University in Washington, D.C. After completing a residency in internal medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, he earned an M.A. in bioethics from Trinity International University and an MDiv and Ph.D. in systematic theology from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which I will hereafter refer to as TEDS. Uh, Prior to coming to Covenant four years ago, Dr. Matawemi served as the managing director of the Henry Center for Theological Understanding at TEDS and as the associate director of the Jonathan Edwards Center at TEDS. Uh, he recently co-edited the book, Adam, the Fall and Original Sin, which was published a couple of years ago. And he has two forthcoming books, uh, The Evolution of Sin, question mark, Sin, Theistic Evolution and the Biological Question, and Reading Christian Theology in the Protestant Tradition, which he is co-editing with Professor Kelly Capick. His research interests lie primarily in systematic theology and in the interface between science and theology. In 2014, he was awarded a two-year grant by Oxford University to participate in the Bridging the Two Cultures of Science and Humanities project sponsored by the Templeton Religion Trust. He currently serves on the Advisory Council for the Creation Project, a three-year, six-initiative project directed by the Henry Center for Theological Understanding at TEDS. And he has received a Henry Resident Research Fellowship at TEDS which means he'll be away from us in the spring of 2017. He's also a featured contributor on Sapientia, which is Latin for wisdom, uh, a digital publication of the Henry Center. Uh, Dr. Matawemi is an elder at St. Elmo Presbyterian Church, right at the foot of the mountain. He and his wife Shelley have two children and live in Flintstone, Georgia, where he says they can sometimes be seen cruising in a foot-pedaled car. Uh, despite his occasional pretensions to kingship, which will only make sense to you if you were at commencement last year. Dr. Matawemi is a warm, humble, gracious, and occasionally, <laughs> occasion, occasionally mischievous servant to our community and to the church at large. Would you please join me in welcoming Dr. Hans Matawemi? Every now and then, I've had uh, conversations with colleagues at other institutions, and we get to talking about our, our students and how they're doing. And honestly, much of what we discuss is exciting and encouraging, the wonderful things that we see on our respective campuses, ways in which our students are thriving. As professors, we come away edified by our students, often encouraged. But it's not unusual to hear stories about students who are not doing well. They're not thriving at all. Uh, these days, we often hear about the psychological and emotional struggles that many Christian students experience on campus. And there's something else. Um, this is what I want us to pause and reflect on uh, this morning. Among some students at Christian colleges, there seems to have been a real, even dramatic shift in the moral texture the moral assumptions of life 
outside the classroom. We hear more stories of students breaking contract as if that's no big deal. Sexual experimentation, crass language, toilet humor. Porn use is almost accepted now. It's the new norm, <clears throat> that kind of thing. Now, I need to be very careful. Uh, what I'm saying is somewhat anecdotal based on conversations I've had. And there are many, many students who don't struggle with any of the things I just mentioned. So let's keep it in perspective. And actually, when you compare Christian colleges with secular campuses, we do far better on such measures. But what is interesting is that when you compare students at uh, Christian schools today with students, say, 20 or 30 years ago, we seem to have taken a few steps backwards. So what actually is going on here? Am I and the people I'm talking to, are we just, let's face it, cranky curmudgeons lamenting a time that never really existed? Do we just love complaining about the younger generation because our own lives are so painfully boring, so pitiful and uninteresting? Am I complaining because the most exciting thing I ever do is mow the lawn on Saturdays? Okay, that might be true if my name were Matt Voss or Chris, <laughs> or Chris Dotson. But seriously, I don't think, I don't think I'm making this stuff up. Um, and while I wish it weren't so, Covenant College is not immune to these trends. I've talked to your RDs, I've talked to your RAs, I've, many of you in my classes, some of you have sat in my office, we've had lunch, we've talked. There's a concept that might help describe what is happening. It's an old and prickly idea, worldliness, worldliness. Right? This word has a checkered history in evangelical circles. It's actually fallen out of use, and I'll get to that in a moment. But I would argue that it is a biblical idea, and we should resurrect it. If not the word, then the concept. And what does the concept mean exactly? Well, worldliness describes the values that we imbibe from our culture, the air that we breathe, right? the assumptions, those unspoken categories and instincts that marginalize God and his word in our lives. To quote the theologian David Wells, these are values that make sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and makes what is wrong seem normal. We become conformed to the anti-Christian sensibilities of our culture. That may be what is happening with many students at Christian colleges and even with some of the students here at Covenant. And of course, the problem is not just with college students, right? It's also with many of us older Christians. A large number of us have become worldly in our intellectual habits and in the way that we live our lives. But we need to step back and tell a longer story. If we think about early Protestant Christians, let's say 17th century and onwards, they were serious about how they lived their lives. Uh, we see this classically in the Puritans, but it was widespread within other Protestant traditions. They rejected idle chit-chat, wasting time, living life in a frivolous way. They completely and absolutely rejected any kind of sexual immorality, whether it was fornication or homosexuality. Even, even the passion between husband and wife needed to be moderate, not excessive. 
And if you were a Christian, you wouldn't break the Sabbath or drink too much alcohol. It was considered a sin to take part in any art or theater, in sports or casual games. Such things were widely, widely condemned. I take a deep breath. I'm not saying everything they believed was correct. I don't want to get on the wrong side of Dr. Whitebroad. I'm just describing how it was, right? I'm painting a picture for you. Um, In his early book, Evangelicalism, The Coming Generation, James Hunter describes all of this in great detail, what he calls rigid moral codes of discipline. And like I said, it was there in the early Protestants, and it continued with the early 20th century fundamentalists. Christians were not allowed to play cards, to dance, to go to movies, uh, to smoke tobacco, or dress in sexually provocative ways. These were not just arbitrary do's and don'ts. They believed they were obeying scripture. God's word was very clear about what it means to live a godly life. Your inner moral character was reflected in how you lived. And if you'd been truly born again, if you'd been converted, then your life would change. You wouldn't do the things that a non-Christian would do. Your life would be discernibly different. So the strict moral code was a way for believers to distinguish what it meant to be faithful and what it meant to be unfaithful to the living God. So all conservative Protestants adopted this way of thinking of worldliness. They took these behavioral norms seriously. But things changed dramatically after the 1960s. In fact, we have concrete data on the views of evangelical college students. There was a notable shift in their thinking. A greater and greater proportion of students saw no problem with dancing or playing cards or studying on Sunday. In 2003, Wheaton College allowed social dancing on campus. And off campus, they also permitted smoking and drinking for faculty, staff, and grad students as long as no undergrads were present. That was a major change at the time, reported in news outlets like the Chicago Tribune and Christianity Today. Actually, sorry, I, I, uh, I misspoke, because even before 2003, Wheaton did allow square dancing. All right, the Capics and the Greens would have been right at home. <laughs> on other Christian campuses, the same shift happened with views on watching Hollywood movies smoking and drinking and so on. Hunter quotes a student from a 1982 study. These things could be sinful if they become an obsession, but they are not intrinsically wrong, said a student. And that's how it went. Evangelical students became much more tolerant of personal habits and behaviors that would have been completely out of bounds for an earlier generation. Again, let me emphasize, as Hunter does, that even though these shifts were very real and dramatic, they were much less dramatic than shifts that were happening among non-evangelical students throughout the U.S. So Hunter's book was published in 1987, right? So keep that in mind, especially when we read this on page 63. I'm quoting, clearly some norms have not changed. Evangelicals still adhere to prohibitions against premarital, extramarital, and homosexual relations. But even here, the attitude toward those prohibitions has noticeably softened. Many of the distinctions separating Christian conduct from worldly conduct have been challenged, if not altogether undermined. Even the words worldly and worldliness have, 
within a generation lost most of their traditional meaning. And that's where we are today. I spoke to a colleague at another Christian college a few weeks ago, and he mentioned how he'd been lecturing on homosexuality and what the Bible teaches. Uh, Most of the students in his class were offended at the traditional position that homosexual practice is a sin. It just seemed deeply, deeply implausible to them. I also talked to a recent Covenant grad who highlighted some blind spots that she saw within our community. Students listen to music and consume movies and media indiscriminately. Everyone does whatever they want without any thoughtful reflection. Gossip and idleness abound. Bad habits of speaking give the impression that students don't care about honesty, integrity, diligence, charity, and similar virtues. And even if you don't mean it, right, those patterns of speaking will start shaping who you are. I could multiply examples like this. So let's pause for reflection. What should we make of all this? No card playing, no dancing. You might think it very funny that such things were considered off the table. One mistake that they made was to forget that culture changes. Cultural practices have meanings that we imbue them with. They take on particular moral associations that are widely shared. But these meanings change over time. When we hear about past moral codes at Christian colleges, they seem passe, almost ridiculous. And I think that's because some of them were rather superficial. Card games are not morally significant as perhaps they were in early 20th century America. So you might be wondering if these early partisan views on worldliness were just over the top. Weren't they too obsessed about right living and using every moment to please God? And fair enough, we may be idealizing what it was like back then in any case. But the question is still worth asking. Should they perhaps have been more laid back, a little more carefree about life? Well, maybe, and yet, And yet, perhaps we need to let them interrogate our own lives. Have we become shallow, shallow believers, flabby, weak, timid, oblivious to the spiritual warfare happening all around us? Do you and me, do we need to man up in a really big way if we want to recover the kind of gospel seriousness that Scripture calls us to? I agree with you. There were some Christian traditions in the past that had an overly harsh or rigid asceticism. Uh, You know, deprive yourself of everything, a life emphasizing withdrawal and isolation from the surrounding culture. Yeah, that's going further than scripture. But today, I think Christians in North America are not struggling with that problem. I would say that our experience as North American Christians is more one of assimilation and conformity. And that starts looking very much like worldliness. But the question you're asking is a good one. Is it all relative? Uh, For instance, I'm convinced that traditional Protestants were right on their sexual ethics. And if we're shifting here, then it's because we've become worldly. But how do I know I'm right about sexual ethics, right? Why were they wrong on card playing and I'm right on sexual ethics? That's a tricky question. 
And no, it's not relative. Actually, if we said that, it's game over. The Bible, I think, plays a key role here. And I'm just going to, I'm oversimplifying, but when God's word is explicit, then its moral rules transcend culture. But when scripture is silent, other factors like culture, biblical principles, wisdom, those become more relevant. Think about what the Bible says. One of the wonderful realities about being a Christian is that we have been united with Christ. His life is our life. His righteousness is our righteousness. We have been welcomed into the happy family of the Trinity. Former orphans, now children of God. The Father has chosen us. The Son has redeemed us. The Holy Spirit has given us new birth. God has justified us. Our sins have been forgiven. We are now saints. We are holy, the sanctified bride, a church without blemish. That is all gloriously, gloriously true. For us here today, this very minute, never forget that. And now, our own daily lives as Christians, week to week, month to month, semester by semester, our lives are a crucible within which God is refining our souls. And one of the reasons that God allows us to experience frustration, anxiety, sadness, pain, suffering, but also joy, delight, and happiness, one of the main reasons he allows us to go through the very stuff of life is so that through those experiences, we can be made more and more like his son Jesus. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, Romans 8, 28. We, the faculty, are also in this school with you, right, believe it or not. And the curriculum is life. We are holy, but we are also becoming holy. All of us, students, faculty, staff, we are all in this school of life, and the course objective is to grow in holiness. That, my friends, is the purpose of our salvation. Not that you need me to tell you this, but it is very clearly laid out in Scripture. The apostolic witness leaves us in no doubt. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 7. It is God's will that you should be holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And again in Ephesians 4, verses 20 to 24, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We hear the same emphasis in Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing 
of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I'm not done yet. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Are you feeling me on this? Holiness is so important that in Revelation 21, 27, we hear this, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those names, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. In light of all that, right, maybe earlier Christians were onto something in being obsessed about worldliness. Why? Well, because worldliness distracts you from God. It marginalizes God in your life. What God cares about seems trivial, uninteresting, boring. It's not worthy of our time and attention. It's not what I think about in my leisure time. There's no malicious intent per se. You just end up caring for far, far more about what the surrounding culture values than what God cares about. Craig Gay is an IDS prof at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada. He wrote a fascinating book where he describes in a very detailed way that what worldliness looks like for us in the modern world. And his basic answer is that worldliness at its core is practical atheism. We basically live our lives as if God doesn't exist. Sure, we believe in him, we believe various things about him, but God is more of a hobby. We think about him on Sundays, doing a small group, uh, during chapel, maybe in doctrine. But when it comes to the area of life that we call leisure, God doesn't play much of a role there. And these days we have hours and hours of leisure time. In other words, our lives are compartmentalized. When we're at leisure, that's who we really are. That's when we really express ourselves and what we love and what we care about. And yet that is when God is most absent. The world system is arranged in such a way that God is irrelevant, right? Whether he exists or not doesn't really matter to our lives. As a society, we believe we can get things done by political power. The government will solve our problems. As a culture, we worship scientific knowledge. And yet, the very way that mainstream science is done marginalizes God's action in the world, what they call methodological naturalism. So that's politics and science. And then there's also the market economy, consumerism, that endless pursuit of self-interest and profit. And on top of all that, there are the many, many technologies that allow us to get things done, to control our lives by sheer technological brilliance and genius. That's the world we're enmeshed in. And all these forces together render God irrelevant. Whether he's real or not, he doesn't really matter in our lives. At least that's what Craig Gay is saying. Worldliness is when we end up living like practical atheists. Think about social media and the role of pop culture in your lives. It's omnipresent, it socializes you, it teaches you, it forms you in deep ways. 
And of course, it's endlessly distracting. It renders God more and more irrelevant. Ken Meyer, the cultural critic, was wrestling with this very problem of worldliness when he wrote this. It's a long quote, but bear with me. It might seem an extreme assertion at first, but I believe that the challenge of living with popular culture may well be as serious for modern Christians as persecution and plagues were for the saints of earlier centuries. Being thrown to the lions or living in the shadow of gruesome death are fairly straightforward if unattractive threats. Enemies that come loudly and visibly are usually much easier to fight than those that are undetectable. Physical affliction, even to the point of death, for the sake of Christ, is a heavy cross, but at least it can be readily recognized at the time as a trial of faith. But the erosion of character, the spoiling of innocent pleasures, and the cheapening of life itself that often accompany modern popular culture can occur so subtly that we believe nothing has happened. Christian concern about popular culture should be as much about the sensibilities it encourages as about its content. Right? That is that's strong medicine, right? This is worse than anything Tina Holt could give you. It's a bitter, bitter pill. So apologies. I know this is heavy stuff for a Monday morning. I can see it on your faces, right? You're already dying for the holiday break. Anything to get away from this Nigerian killjoy. Right? <laughs> okay, yes. Yes, it is heavy stuff. And if we're not careful, that can become a new burden, right? It can lead us to despair, a moralism just as ineffective as worldliness. Because it's easy to lay out the problems with the world, that it is vanity of vanities, insignificant, worthless in God's scheme of things. And it is also easy to show that we're actually to hate the world with every fiber of our being. Remember what it says in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So John is very clear. Either we love God or we love the world. We can't have both. And when John speaks about the world, he doesn't mean God's creation. He doesn't mean unbelievers in the world. We're to love God's creation, and we're to love our non-Christian neighbors. When John says world, he means the evil system under the devil's control, the ungodly values and motives and goals that have no interest in submitting to the Lordship of Christ. John 12, 31 describes the devil as the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we read that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. My friends, the devil is the God of this age. Right? We are told in Ephesians 2, 2 that he is the prince of the power of the air. Make no mistake. There are superhuman forces at work. Here be dragons, and all they live for is to keep you away from the deepest love of your life, the very happiness of your soul, the goodness of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They mean to keep you away from experiencing that, their weapon of choice, worldliness. Right? And that's why I said there's a real danger of falling into moralism 
If I only try harder, if I can only reform my habits, if I read more books or listen to talks about how deceptive the world is, then I can change my heart. How's that working for you, brother? All right? Those things I mentioned are good. Don't get me wrong, but moral self-effort alone doesn't stand a chance against worldliness in your life. That was the message in one of the greatest sermons of all time by the Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers, the expulsive power of a new affection. Worldliness is loving the world, yet scripture says we are not to love the world. There is only one thing that can compete with loving the world, and that is loving God. We need a new affection. There needs to be a change of the heart. We need to be captivated by a new love, a new desire that flows from the inside. Yes, that's what the gospel has done in our lives. When the Lord opened our eyes and we saw something so beautiful, something so lovely, something so glorious that it turned our lives upside down. We trusted Christ. We experienced the forgiveness of sins because of what Jesus did for us. My life can never be the same again. That's the new affection. We were so excited to know this God who saved us, learning who he is, learning more about his grace, about prayer, about scripture, and all the other great things of the gospel. There was no room for loving the world. The new affection, that's the key. As Sinclair Ferguson put it many years ago, the way in which we maintain the expulsive power of a new affection is the same as the way we first discovered it, right? Only when grace is still amazing to us does it retain its power in us. Only as we retain a sense of our profound sinfulness can we retain a sense of the graciousness of grace. Bingo, right? We don't want to be moralistic, trusting in ourselves. No, we want to maintain that expulsive power of the new affection. We need to keep refreshing our love for God, remembering the gospel. Yes, the gospel is at the center of it. But obedience, obeying God's command, still matters even when we don't feel like it. It's both and, right? Keep the gospel promises first in your heart and keep fighting against worldliness. So here's my question. At this institution, this campus, what would it look like if we were serious about this? Again, remember, I'm thinking about worldliness as it affects your lives outside the classroom. I keep being told that old people like me should treat you students with kitty gloves, right? Don't push them too much. Uh, Give them bite-sized pieces, right? These kids, they're too fragile. Sorry, I I don't believe that about most of you. I don't think that's the best way to care for you. In many ways, you're tougher than we were at your age. I love you too much, which is why we need to keep it real. We need to channel the spirit of Covenant College, the undying spirit of the Scots that gave us bright lights like Randy Neighbors, Joanna Taft, Mark Gornick, James Ward, Bill Davis and many, many others. These are people who graduated from this very institution, and they weren't half-stepping. They went all the way. They were radical in the best sense. 
We are the Scots. It is in our blood. That is our tradition. So here's my dangerous idea. Holiness as the new cool, right? Holiness is dangerous. It is subversive of the secular plausibility structures that are so toxic to our faith. That's how we reverse the effects of worldliness. Listen, the resources that God gives us, they haven't changed. The expulsive power of the new affection is still at the heart of our faith. But the devil wants to neutralize all that. He wants to make them ineffective in our lives. He wants you to limp along, bleeding out from practical atheism. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you and suck out any remnant of loyalty to God. But take heart, my friends, because Jesus is the dragon slayer. The devil is defeated already. But in this short time before the end, he's frantic and wants to take down as many souls as he can. And so I close with four quick recommendations. First, we need to keep relying on the normal means of grace that the Lord has given us, the regular reading of scripture and prayer. Those need to be part of our day-to-day routines. God's word is more important to us than physical nourishment. And unless we are praying people, we will be very ineffective as Christians. Be committed to a local church, not Bedside Baptist or the Church of the Holy Comforter or whatever, any of those churches. Serve in the nursery, right? Teach high school kids. Be involved in the life of the church. But you know all this, right? And yet the power of God's word in our lives is often nullified or diminished. We're like the seed that fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. So my second point, we can't do this alone. Individualism be damned, right? We need community. I've already said the local church is key, but here on campus, you need friends who are serious about God, covenant together to fight practical atheism in your lives. Make a habit of reading cultural commentators and critics who help us discern the times. Read Sherry Turkle's Reclaiming Conversation or watch her TED Talks. Discuss, press into the issues together. Parenthetically, a really important question is how we decide if our entertainment choices are worldly. And I'm not going to get into that here, and I know some of you may be grimacing that I'd even raise the issue, but I know there are students who want guidance on this, and it's where our individualism kills us. Everyone does whatever they want, and that's where you all need to be having a conversation, and your RDs should be part of that. This is where community is so key, right? All for one, one for all. And my third point, and I know you don't want me to say this, My doctrine students are going to bite my head off. But many of you need to cut off the umbilical cord. I don't mean your parents. I mean social media. I know you can use it in moderation. You can use it wisely. Blah, blah, blah. Actually, for many of you, you need to be more radical than that. This is consuming too much of your time. And for some of you, it is socializing you in destructive ways. Do whatever it takes to create space for God to be meaningful in your life. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Oh, but social media is here to stay. We can't resist it. We have to learn to live with it. Okay, I hear you. But don't sell out to technological determinism. Believe it or not, we can change. We can choose to arrange our lives in different ways. Listen, non-Christians are pushing back against the omnipresence and distraction of these technologies. Can't we do better? 
Shutting down these connections allows you to detox. The fog, it disappears, and you can become more spiritually focused and serious. You can address areas of personal piety that you've let slide for months, if not years. But it also allows you to look for ways to serve others, to be a light in the world. There are many ministries associated with your local church or with Mark 10.45, giving the gospel hands and feet, helping the widow, caring for the elderly, getting involved with ministries that help people break the cycle of poverty or help resettle immigrants, that kind of thing. This is what holiness looks like, the antidote to worldliness. And my last thought, why don't we build new, fresh, creative traditions here at Covenant? I'm a big fan of all the fun, prankster, weird hall traditions that you all have. May they increase, right? It's part of what makes covenant so special. But why not have new traditions with the main purpose of socializing you to be prophetic, right? To be Scottish iconoclasts, where it's cool to be godly, right? A tradition like Mac Movie Night or Mountain Affair, but where the goal is to invite the best ideas for enriching the spiritual life of the community so that holiness is something attractive, something desirable, something cool, so that our campus has a different ethos, different priorities. Your imagination is better than mine. You'll come up with better ideas, new traditions. That's my exhortation to you this morning. This is Covenant College, holy people on a holy mountain. And today, my friends, today we are starting a revolution. Holiness, the new cool. Are you with me? Thank you.